turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. A few weeks back, or maybe within the past week or so, you probably were, uh, saw the news of two teenage boys who went out in the boat from, I believe, Jupiter, went out into the ocean and to go fishing, and were very, very knowledgeable of all of that, but uh, were gone beyond when they should have been gone, and when they went to look for them, they found their boat capsized and could not find the, the boys. And an intense uh, search effort went underway. Uh, the Coast Guard, uh, volunteers, even John Travolta, you know, God bless him, uh, you, know, flew, you know, he's a pilot and flew his plane and, and made his effort to look for these boys and kind of, and they just began to look at currents and those type of things and began to try to figure out where the boat or really the boat was there. It was them. They would have been on their own and they thought maybe because there was a missing ice chest that maybe they were using that to float on or again, just desperate search. And every day parents, mom and dad was believing that their boys were going to be found. Can you imagine such a such a horrible, horrible thing. Then finally, after, on the eighth day, the Coast Guard said, it's, we're going to have to, we're going to have to cease, that it's more than likely that they are, are dead and that uh, will not be found. But what struck me in true parental form was that the mother, the dad, said, we will never quit looking for our children. Never quit looking for our children. I thought of that as we come to the last portion of our study on James today. And I want us to look at verses 19 through 20. Do we have that on the screen up there? And would you stand if you are able to? We're going to, I'll read and you can follow along your Bible or read it on the screen. If you're able to stand, you're welcome to do that. But let me just read from verse 19 and 20 of James and pray. James concludes this by writing, and he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the counsel of your word. We thank you that it is the authority over this church, over our life. We thank you that the Holy Spirit brings a timely word to us as your church, as your people today, Lord, as we seek to be like Christ. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You may be seated. One of the most difficult things to do that James is ending this very practical letter that he wrote in this series, we've called it The Gospel on the Ground, because it's the gospel in real time, lived out. What does it look like in just the normal affairs of life? And he begins by talking about trials and tough situations. He talks about the words that we say, how we treat one another, how we treat those who are better 
financially off than us and how we treat those who are less. I mean, it involves every little practicality that you can imagine, and that's why we called it gospel on the ground. What does it look like to have the gospel demonstrated in real time, real life? James has helped us, I think, in doing that. And as he draws it to a close today, or he didn't do it today, he did it a long time ago, but as we uh, draw it to a close in verses 19 through 20, he exhorts us to do what is probably one of the more difficult things to do as Christians. And that is this, is that he puts upon us, the believers, us, that we have the responsibility to help restore those who have strayed from the truth. If you've been in church for any length of time, any church, there are those who come and there are those who go. Now they'll leave for various reasons, and, and, but there are those who come and they make a great entrance and they love the Spirit of the Lord, they love the church, they love the preaching. You know, it's amazing how few people, they love, you know what people say can, all the time about this church? I wish to tell you they said, oh, the preaching, it can't get any better. They don't say that, and that's okay. But you know what they say? They say, this is the friendliest church we've ever been in. That is, that is the Spirit of the Lord in you, and I love that. I think that's fantastic. But for whatever reason, people come and people go, and sometimes people will leave, and, and the word that James uses, and, and perhaps maybe a word like, I guess when I was thinking about those young boys that they, and I, I've read stories of people talking about they've gone out fishing, and they, I think I read a story a while back where they went out and they took a nap. And when they woke up, they couldn't see land. They were so far drifted beyond what they could imagine uh, that they had no idea where they were, and they were rescued after three or four days. That sometimes happens, oftentimes happens in the Christian life. There's a drifting. The old song, I believe it was, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and the line, Prone to wonder, Lord, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's something that at times when we get caught up in the rough and tumble of just life, stuff, bills, family, in-laws, outlaws, whatever it is, we get, we get discouraged. And there's a tendency when we get, we get separated from the flock, it isn't just church attendance. Sometimes when you hear pastors talk about that, you think it's just church. No, it's not church attendance. It's being connected to the community of believers, the community of faith. There's something about being connected to one another, but we live in a society that's very isolated. We can, you can join the church on the internet. There's churches now, you can become a member by internet, and you can just kind of sit there in your jammies and your coffee on Sunday morning or Tuesday afternoon, whatever it is you want to have it. It's up to you, and you can have church, and they'll say you can just pay your tithes, go to PayPal and send it. You know, you don't have to interact with anybody, and you know what? If you don't like the pastor's sermon, guess what? You just click it off and go back to watching Dr. Phil or whatever it is you do. That's the kind of culture we live in. We're very isolated. We walk around with headphones. We walk around with... I'm surprised more people are not injured because they're not watching where they're going. How many times do you just go in the mall or whatever and people are glued to their cell phone? We are just so concentrated upon our own little world and we bring that mindset into our church life. We're not in the days 
uh, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. There's not the local community church where people moved and they built their homes around and their families were there and their grandparents and there were you may have been a part of that church that kind of church environment i know that uh that's been a big effect in the inner city where church families uh moved to certain areas and immigrants and people that came over and they began to congregate in certain areas and the church or churches became a real anchor to those neighborhoods and families but it's so easy to get isolated and it's so easy to drift and james Writing, as he begins the letter, he says, Dear brothers, he's talking to believers. He's talking to us. He's a pastor. You remember that James, church history reminds us that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's not the apostle James, even though he became one of the apostles, but he's not the apostle that we see who was the first apostle killed in the, uh, in the New Testament. He's the half-brother of James. He's the full-blooded son of Joseph and Mary. And he, like other brothers, he didn't really believe and buy into Jesus, this Messiah thing, when, it was, when Jesus was, had his earthly ministry here. There's several episodes where it says that Jesus, even his own family, even his brothers, did not believe in him. But after the resurrection, the resurrection changes everything, doesn't it? I hope it does. It's like I prayed. Otherwise, we're just celebrating a dead martyr who's a good philosopher but he's just like everybody else. No, what makes us, the church, the gospel distinct is that we celebrate one who's alive. A man who walks out of a grave, a tomb, bodily, is raised from the dead, has got my attention. I'm going to pay attention to what he says about marriage and family and how to know God. That, you know, that he's got my attention and he should have yours as well. But there's several things here in this passage, just to break it down, that I call this, that we are God's search and rescue ministry. That's what he's calling us to do in these two verses, to be a part of God's search and rescue ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says that God has given to us, the us is us, the ministry of reconciliation. So it's not something that we really can get off the hook over. We are into this. If you're a part of the church, and I'm talking about church, capital C, not just Grace Church. We're, we're just a little part of the bigger church that God has around this world. We're not it. We're not some cult that thinks we've got a corner on the truth. We're a part of the bigger and wider global church, the body of believers that are meeting in secret in North Korea and Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iran, guess what? We are all joined together with those believers here today. Do you realize that? And one day there will be that innumerable multitude that will be gathered around the throne of Christ worshiping the Lamb, worshiping the Lamb. That will be a part, that will be the church that we'll see visible. Until then, we have our small little places that we gather together. And so the emphasis is upon us to be ministers of reconciliation, to be people that are part of God's search and rescue ministry. Look with me at, at three things that I want to highlight this morning. And the first is we need to notice a reality to remember, a reality to remember. Here it is, professing Christians, professing Christians stray 
from the truth both morally and doctrinally. That is a reality we need to remember that James is causing us to remember is that professing Christians stray from the truth both doctrinally and morally. At the first part of verse 19, he says, My brothers, my brethren, if anyone among you strays... He's talking to the church. He's saying that, look, there are those that among you that will from time to time, they will drift off. And there's reasons for that. Verse 20, he talks about saving their soul from death. More like saving their soul from hell is what I think is the emphasis there. But he's talked, sometimes we've used this term in our, if you've grown up in the church, we'll talk about a backslider. Well, he's a backslider or they're backslidden. That means they have, they have drifted away. It isn't that they just stop coming to church, but they have drifted, they have backslidden where they are, they are not where they once were. They are not where God would have them to be. So James is writing to the church, and I think James knows that some in the church that have made, just like this church or any church, have made professions of faith. They've made a decision. They've walked an aisle. They've filled out a card. They shook the preacher's hand. They got bad. They've made an overt profession, but that doesn't necessarily mean that genuine conversion has taken place. They've made a decision, but it hasn't transformed their life. And so James is reminding us that true saving faith, and he's done this all through his letter, where he says in chapter 1, verse 22, and says, be doers of the word. You know, genuine faith is seen in whether we are just hearers. He says in chapter 1, verse 22, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves or deceive themselves. We have to be careful. Chapter 2, 14, he asks rhetorically, what use is it, brothers, sisters, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? He goes to verse 17, it says, even so faith if it has no works, it is dead. Now, certainly you know, because we've said this, and you're smart enough to know if you've been around uh, uh, the church and, and growing up, you know that we are not saved by works. We are saved through, by grace, through faith, and it is not of yourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reminds us. But we are His workmanship, it goes on to say in verse 10 of Ephesians 2. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Okay. So the works, the actions, or the evidence of genuine saving faith are seen in some measure as we move forward in the Christian life. They are, there's, there's fruit, the Bible. Now, we know some fruity Christians, but this isn't that. Uh, this is that we see fruit like a tree birth in the person's life, in the Christian's life. And that genuine saving faith is always going to be seen in this in this light, I think of also something just maybe help us understand about this type of believer or potential type of believer in the church. I think of what Jesus brought out in the parable 
of the soils. Remember the parable, the sower, the soils, and there's there uh, in every gospel except uh, John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's an account of this, and I'll just remind you of it. Thinking of Luke's version, as I as I just kind of review this, some of the seed. Remember where he said uh, the kingdom of God is like a sower it went out to sow seed, and so some of the seed. Remember it fell on the hard ground along the road. Okay, now what Jesus is talking about is the different types of individuals that receive the Word of God and what the seed, the Word of God is the seed, and how that affects differently different individuals and what takes place. So he says some of the seed that was sown, picturing the work of the Lord, the work of the Spirit and sowing the Word of God, it it fell on hard ground along the road. And the birds, Jesus said, came and snatched it away. It didn't It didn't get into the soil. And so this represents unbelievers that hear the Word. They're entertained by the Word. They're aroused by the Word. They're, you know, they kind of like, you know, they're entertained, good jokes, good story. We get out in 20 minutes. uh, We get to get the Golden Corral before the Episcopalians, and everything's good, you know. So we like that. Well, but nothing takes place. There's nothing that is rooted down into their heart. Jesus said, The seed has fallen on hard ground. Other seed, he says, fell on shallow soil that had a hard, rocky layer beneath it. The seed immediately sprang up, looked like it was good, it looked like something was happening, but when the sun came out, it withered and died because it had no roots. It was shallow faith. Jesus said this seed represents those who receive the word, Initially with joy, they believe for a while, but in times of trial and temptation, they fall away. Their faith did not produce any fruit in their life. The third seed, Jesus says, fell among the thorns. It sprouted up for a while, but then the thorns choked it out, and it did not bear any fruit. It didn't result in the intended design. Jesus said this refers to those who are choked, and I'm quoting here, are choked with worries and riches and the pleasures in this life and bring no fruit to maturity. They hear the word. They're excited by it because they are so entangled in the world culture system, they can't quite disconnect themselves from their affections of the world and make a true faith commitment to Jesus. And so they're choked. The, the, the seed is choked out. There's no maturity. That's why it's so sad to see people who have been Christians for years, born and raised in the church, and yet you mention to them some of the most basic things of the Word of God, and they have no clue of what you're talking about. That's sad. That's sad. Well, you can blame the church, but but again, there's something, there's nothing that has gotten into their root system in making that kind of commitment. But the fourth, Jesus said, the fourth seed that was sown among the soil was sown or cast in good soil. Jesus said, these are the ones who, they hear the word of God. They hear it. And they hear it in an honesty and sincerity. And they hold fast to it. They, they believe it. And the Bible says they bear fruit, using again, fruit again, with perseverance. That means that when the tough times come, they're not blown away by it. Yeah, they're stressed. They're dealing with the real stuff of life. They're, you know, they're not living in some fantasy world, 
but they hold true to the faith, to the Word of God. I've gone through tough times in my life like you have, and there was a particular time in my life that was tougher, the toughest so far. And among all the things, I never again was tempted to abandon God. One of the reasons, I believe, is because I just knew too much about who God was to throw in the towel. Did that mean I was happy and jolly and every you know, carefree? No. It just meant, yeah, I had to work through this. I had to persevere. But the one thing I didn't need to do was to abandon the one who was going to sustain me through this process. I think sometimes Christians, because they bought into so much stuff that they watch on television or shallow paperback books from the local Christian bookstore that are just meant to be shallow fluff and uh, every day's a Friday and that kind of nonsense. And then when something happens, when something happens, you're like, well, this is bogus. This is a scam. This doesn't work. James says when you go through trials, Trials will test your faith. Why is there a testing? We've said this over and over again. It reveals weaknesses. You build a massive bridge. You put the last screw in. You nail the last, whatever they do. You can see I'm a construction guy. Whatever they do, build the bridge. Put the last rivet in there. Is that something, a rivet? Does that do something? All right, I don't know. I don't know. I better get out of it quick. And you got the last guy. And all of a sudden it's say, okay. Trucks, cars, come on. And all of a sudden, things give way and people start crashing into the wall. Well, no, they're going to test it first. What do they, how do they test it? They test it usually way above and beyond the weight that it was built to sustain because that's when in the testing, you want it to reveal flaws and cracks. God in His mercy, yes, will allow trials to come into our life to do what? To push us further from Him? No, to drive us further into His presence so we realize how much we need Him, how much we're dependent on Him. When Jesus is in our life and He's all that we have, those are the persevering moments. But there's a second part to this. And that the Word of God tells us that not only is there the reality that we need to remember that professing Christians will stray from the truth, but the second part in these verses that we're looking at this morning is our responsibility, our responsibility to rescue. Yes, that's our responsibility. And there's a couple of things here within the, under, that, under that thought. This is a responsibility for all believers. This isn't just for some professional clergy class that has the responsibility. He says, my brothers, my sisters, my church. He's addressing everyone that has and should have this responsibility. Now, we know because he addresses elders separately. So he's addressing the entire body of believers and says that, This is your responsibility that when someone strays, wanders, drifts, it is your responsibility to bring them back. 
oh no, we're going to call the church office and we're going to have uh, Stetson, we need to go over and take care of this or whatever. Well, who, who are they? Well, they're my, they're my good best friend, but I need you to go over there. Well, wait a minute, shouldn't you do? Are you a, yeah, I'm a Christian and you know this. Yeah, you, well, don't you think maybe you should be the one that asks God to give you wisdom and, and that's your responsibility? It's a responsibility for the believer. Paul even brought this out in Galatians 6. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass or sin, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You who are spiritual. Now, probably the only people that would be off the hook is if you're a new believer. And I say new believer, I don't mean in the past 20 years. I mean, you're a new believer and, and this is still all, you know, you're, you're, you still think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the subgroup of Peter, Paul, and Mary or something. You're not sure how all this fits in, you know. You're not sure, you know, if Ringo gets in the Gospels. You've heard about Paul, you know, you don't know. You don't know nothing. I remember when I first became a believer singing in class and they said, turn to John 3.16. I didn't know who John was. I didn't know what a, the three meant. I didn't know what 16 meant. Okay? So you can just... Give yourself a little break for a while till you grow. But for the rest of us who've been around, this is on us. This is a responsibility on us that we must go to them. We must go to them in order to turn them back to the Lord. Not necessarily to bring them back to church, even though that's part of it in the sense of a wider community of the believers, but it's our responsibility to bring them back. Notice also, it's not just to all the believers, but it requires both, both searching and rescuing. Searching and rescuing. Searching is required sometimes because usually those who fall in to sin and they are no longer a part of the body of believers... It's usually because they don't want to be a part of the body of believers because they are involved or they're disconnected and they are not wanting to be seen or heard because they would rather kind of continue to do what they're doing and they don't want you to be involved. That's why oftentimes when you try to call them, you try to reach out to them, you don't get much response because often, many times, they know what you're going to say. They know. Have you ever had somebody that was a dear friend, maybe somebody in the church, and you were close to them, and, and you had a good relationship, you prayed together, you, you enjoyed all, all those experiences, and then something began to happen. You saw things that happened in their life, and they began to drift, and you, you, you know, you just, again, you, you observe this, almost like a train wreck coming. You saw it from, you know, and you just saw it coming, and when something happened, it didn't shock you because you kind of saw some patterns and things being developed, and you tried to go to them, and you tried to encourage them. You tried to get them connected relationally and, and whatever it was, and then when you called them one day, reached out to them, all of a sudden you noticed that they weren't returning your calls. You Facebooked them, no response. And you know, you can see when somebody reads the message. Don't you love that? That just, that blesses my heart when I need to hear somebody. And you see they read it. And you want to say, I know you read it. <laughs> All right, that's free. <laughs> 
and you don't, you're not, you, you, you know, you sense. You with me? Hello, everybody here? You sense that there's something that has happened here. Something has changed in that relationship. So there often is a searching, but the rescue is required because it is usually, it is seldom that the person who has wandered off, drifted, strayed, it's usually not the case that they are going to come back on their own. They need you, Galatians says, who are spiritual, to go rescue them. You need to go just like those people that are lost out at sea. They can't get back. They are just surviving. They're just living for another day. Rescuers say that it's, it's usually not beyond more than the fifth or sixth day that somebody can survive in water. Not in a boat, but barely you can tread water for a few minutes, let alone having to survive. Maybe if you have a life vest, but it said the salt water begins to uh, infect your blood system and your kidneys start to fail. So they said usually by the fifth or sixth day, they've rarely seen much survivability of just being in the water. They're out there flailing away, and they need you to rescue them. They, they can't get back on their own. That's the picture that we want to lay out this morning. That's what James is saying. They need you to go rescue them and bring them back, and bring them back and assure them that they don't have to. How many times have somebody said, well, they feel like they've done so much, they're embarrassed to come back because of what everybody will say. And I usually say, you know what? People ain't talking about you that much, so get over yourself, all right? You're not that important. I mean, you're important, but, it, you know. But what happens with us? When, we're, when we feel that way, we feel like everything's just magnified. You go somewhere, you go to Target, you feel like everybody's just looking at you. Yeah, they know, they know. They know. You come to the church and everybody turns around and looks and they're like, oh, they all know. Pastor Tim had it up on the screen. He preached a whole sermon on it. It was on Facebook. I mean, everybody was getting emailed under prayer requests. You know, that kind of thing, right? No, we don't, we don't do that in that. We don't do that. And so they need you to come rescue. And that leads us to the third observation. There's a reality to remember. There will be those who stray. We, we, the church, the believers, we have a responsibility to rescue. That's a job for all believers. But the third is the restoration in the returning. There's restoration in returning. The goal, why are we doing this? The goal is laid out here. The goal of a search and rescue ministry is that we are to restore the sinner to the truth. This is what James tells us. Restore the sinner to the truth, to save their soul from death, and to cover a multitude of sins. That's what's involved in the restoration, the restoration that's involved in their return. We are to restore the sinner to the truth. We live in a day and time where there's the concept that there really is no absolute truth. There's no absolute... I mean. What's true to you may not be true to me. We're in a, we call that relativism. We, we just, well, what works for you, but don't, we don't want to be bigoted. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to be seen as some ancient type of, of mentality. We live in a very PC world. But James is saying that we are to return them back to the truth. He's using that in a very deliberate way. 
In chapter 118, he uses the word truth in this way. In James 118, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In chapter 314, he uses it another time. But if you who have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Jude says that we are to defend the truth that was once and for all delivered to the saints. He's recognizing that there's an embodiment of truth that we define is necessary to be a part of followers of Christ. There are truths, but there is the truth. And that goes so counter, right, against our culture. What do you mean that that's, that's just your opinion? I have my own truth. That's the world we live in, but James pushes back against that. Bible says in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no other name. Now, that was the testimony of the apostles coming right out of the gate in their ministry, empowered by the Holy Spirit. They said, look, there is salvation in no other name than in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way. He's not a truth. He is the truth. He's exclusive. He is everything opposite of the politically correct mindset world that we, we live in. He made, He, Jesus, He made exclusive claims that the way to the Father, in John 6, the way to God was through Him. Without Him, you can't know and get to God. Well, that's just His opinion. Okay, then who you buy into, did he rise from the dead? Oh, he didn't do that? Okay, well then we'll just put your guy on hold. I'm going with the guy that rose from the dead, right? So we, had, we embrace truth. One of the things that James is saying here, just to, to point this out, is that there are individuals who will wander and drift away from the truth. There are people that I have known, and they've gotten involved in cults and false religion, and teaching that is harmful and not part of the historic faith of the gospel. What do we do? We can't rescue them. Here's a newsflash, guys. We can't rescue them if we don't know the truth ourselves. They've been persuaded by somebody knocking on their door. They've been persuaded by some internet page. My goodness, anybody can start a church in their mother's basement if they just have an internet connection. And all of a sudden they say, oh, don't you read all this? Listen, don't believe everything you read. Be Bereans. Search the Word of God. See if it lines up with the whole counsel of God's Word. But you can't do that if you have a sporadic view of truth. Be people of truth. Don't be afraid to, to push back on things that you say, I don't know. I don't know what that squares. That is often the Holy Spirit in you cautioning you, he's done that with me. Things that look good, sound good. The search and rescue ministry not only is to restore the person to truth, 
James says, it's to save the sinner's soul from death. I believe that he's, in this context, he's talking about saving the soul from spiritual death. Spiritual death. He talks about death in chapter 1, verse 15, how when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Paul would say in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. R.G. Lee, old preacher, said the devil always pays in counterfeit money. I like that. always think about that when I read John 6, 23. But then there's also not only a rescuing and restoring them back to truth of the Word of God. Listen, some guy who's left his wife and shacking up with another woman who is not his wife, that's adultery, guys. Okay? That is clearly... I don't care if an angel came in your room and told you to do this. That is not from God. Okay? You are deceived. Okay? It may mean going... It may have a door slammed in your face. But you know what? If you don't, as a spiritual truth bearer representing the gospel, if you don't, who will? Who will? We need to rescue those and save them from truth. And I brought that up to say that sometimes it's amazing how people can be so deceived that they actually will use the Word of God to justify their deception. Listen, the devil can quote Scripture too. Just because you got a life verse in the middle of your little fantasy party, that doesn't mean anything if it counters the clear written direction of the Word of the Lord. Charles Stanley says, obey God and leave the circumstances and consequences rather with Him. Obey God at all costs and leave the consequences to Him. God cannot work in honor where truth is suppressed. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? John 16. He will lead you into... When Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, about John 16, He will lead you into some truth. He will lead you into all truth. He will bear witness to me. So the Holy Spirit is a part of this process in us being truth-tellers, truth-bearers, and witnessing and discerning of truth in people's lives. And I'll also say this. This is where there is, I think, again, don't, don't shut out what the Bible talks about in those situations, a word of knowledge into that situation. That's a work of the Spirit. You know, it isn't just going on TV and praying for somebody's toenail somewhere out in the, in the 5 million TV audience. It's God giving you a direct word. And that is often, well, you know when that's happened to me? It's happened usually when I've been praying for somebody. Somebody will say, would you pray for me in this situation? Okay, sure. And as I'm praying, I begin to pray in such a way that after I pray... They say, you prayed exactly what I needed to hear. How did you know that? I didn't. But the Holy Spirit knows it. See, it's not weird or spooky. Just being available and say, God, I don't know how to, I don't know how to approach this situation. I don't know how to approach this person. I don't know what to say, but guess what? You do. You know exactly what to say. 
So put your words, your direction, your thoughts into my heart and mind so that what I say is coming from you. And the words that I say will be words of life that will penetrate the heart. Remember when Peter stood the day of Pentecost and he preached and it said that the men, the women, the people were cut to the heart. That's the power of the Word of God. It doesn't have to come from a pulpit. It could come from you sitting across and having coffee and you're just speaking truth in the person's life and the Holy Spirit takes that and it's just penetrating the heart. And the Holy Spirit's bearing witness and drawing them back, drawing them back from death. And he says that our role is as we involve ourselves and commit ourselves to this search and rescue, is that in this process, a multitude of sins will be covered. Let him or her know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions, all sins. Peter says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. I think Peter knew something about that, right? Right? Betrayed Jesus, remember? little. I think he understood that. He could speak to that, how his sins, not only, you know, under the blood of Christ at Calvary, about how he had his transgression covered, his betrayal covered. Shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we be mindful and protecting of those who that uh, God has put in our path to be representatives of the transformation power of, the, of grace? That's what we're talking about here. You say, well, how do I do that? I'm going to give you seven quick, quick. I mean, I'm doing so quick, you'll, if you blink, you'll miss one. All right? We've already talked about, number one, who should go. If you have knowledge of the situation, guess what? Tag, you're it. Secondly, before you go, don't go on gossip. Don't go on hearsay. Don't go on just some accusation. Go and talk to that person when you factually know what you're talking about. Thirdly, make sure you check your own heart. The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. What is your motive? Are your motive to cover, love, extend grace and mercy and bring them back? Or is it a sense of, you know what, I've just been waiting to just tell them, I knew this would happen to you. You run around with that old guy and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, No, they don't need that. Restore, that word restore, Galatians 6, 1, uh, interesting, the word restore is a Greek word that's used of mending torn nets and of setting broken bones so they should heal. You do that gently. When you go to the doctor, you ever had a doctor that had lousy, you know, uh, what do I say, what's the term, bedside manners or whatever, you know, and they, they think, you know, he's, he's knocking you around like he's fixing an old Buick or something. And, and you want somebody gentle. When your teeth is impacted and it's in pain, you don't need some guy in there just... You need gentleness. When we restore and we're involved in going to that person, let's know our own heart 
And think of how the grace of God has completely covered our sins, and there but by the grace of God go I. Fourthly, pray. That should probably at the first of the list. Pray. Don't attempt to do this without prayer. Handle with prayer. Pray. Ask God to give you wisdom, words, knowledge, all those things. He will do it. Fifth, make sure that love for God and love for your brother or your sister are your motives for going. Is it loving God? Is it, or is it just somehow you just kind of relish? Listen, we all have sinful hearts. And there is something in our sinful hearts that when we hear somebody who has wronged us, self-destruct, do not lie and say there's something just somewhere back in there you're like, yeah, I'm finally good. They got it. That's sin, guys. That's wrong. Maybe people of mercy. Six, go directly to the person. No emails, no texts. Go to the person directly. And here's some wisdom. Go alone at first. And if you're a man and it's another man, if it's a man, if you're a man and it's a woman, you take your wife or you allow another woman to go. You don't deal with that. You allow men to deal with men, women to deal with women, or you bring a spouse along, but use wisdom there, guys, okay? Go alone at first. This is a pattern, I think, in Matthew 18. Go alone at first. If they listen, the Bible says you've won a brother, you've won a sister. If they don't, you take two or three others next time to try to bring more counsel to them. And eventually, if they refuse to listen... Jesus said, Jesus said, not a denominator. Jesus said, you bring it before the church. Now, that might be leadership. I think there's some ambiguity there. The point is, is that there reaches a point in which you've done everything possible, but there's not a good thing for a church to have a member who is willfully and deliberately committing sin, and somehow the church just says, you know what, that's all okay. We have an obligation to go to them counsel them, do everything possible. And certainly, I don't necessarily think that means reading their name. Some churches, you know, have done that, and they've gotten sued for doing it. So you can be stupid, right? But it might be informing the eldership, the leadership, because you don't need that person who is doing this type of action and behavior and refuses to be brought back and restored. You do not need them to be teaching youth on Wednesday nights, right? You're never going to be that desperate, Stetson, all right? And last, and I thought of this, this from this Wednesday, we studied how Nathan approached David. When Nathan the prophet confronted David over his own sin of committing adultery, he thought he had it all, he thought he had it all taken care of. Checks were mailed out, right people, or in the, you know, he had it all dealt with until... God used an individual to come into his life. And notice if you study that, you see how Nathan gently brought David to a place of emotion. You remember he told him that story? He said, there, you know, David, I hate to tell you this, but there's some guy who, he's, a, he's one of the wealthy people here in the nation, and uh, he had a visitor come, and instead of him going and killing one of his sheep to provide the stew and the meat, he went to this poor man 
took his little lamb pet and used that to cook this stranger's dinner. Just because he was powerful and evil and mean. And boy, David got hot. He got mad. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with that guy. And Nathan says, you're that guy. You're that guy. Nathan used, I believe, a spirit-led tact in bringing David to the place that when David was confronted, he repented. That's the reason David, not Saul, is called a man after God's own heart. Doesn't mean perfection. Doesn't mean they never made a mistake. It means that when he was pressed with his sin and disobedience, he didn't try to backpedal and justify. Well, here's why I did it. Here's my justification. I think about the difference between Judas and Peter. Both of them betrayed Jesus. Agreed? Everybody agreed on that? Both betrayed. Judas sought to reconcile himself. Peter knew that only reconciliation was through the forgiveness of Christ. I believe with all my heart that had Judas repented and asked Jesus to forgive him, do you think Judas would have not been beneficiary of the forgiveness of Christ any more than Peter was? Judas hung himself. Judas was a lawman. He dealt with himself legally. I don't want to be dealt legally. I want to be dealt gracefully. I want to be dealt with mercifully. Right? Do not we, in turn, should be those type of ministers of reconciliation as we seek to rescue those who have strayed away from us? Again, it's not just getting them in church. That may be part of it. But it's getting them right with God. And God has called us to be used by Him to be those type of people that, res- that search and rescue. Mm-hmm.